it's just an incredible book as God is laying out for us the, the final stages of, of human life upon this planet as, as we would know it. And we've covered a, a lot of ground, and at this point, we've made ourselves to Revelation chapter 14. Why don't you get over there? And before we actually get into Revelation chapter 14, let me just make sure that we have a we all have a biblical understanding of some of the terms that we're going to be using this morning, and this will be very helpful for those of you who may be newer in the Christian life, or maybe this is the first time that you've been here and ever been into a, an intense Bible study in the book of Revelation. Uh, the first term that we need to talk about is, is very simply the church age, the church age. And what the church age is, is very simply the, the period of time in which you and I are presently living. And all that really means when we talk about the church age is that we're living at a time or we're living in a, in a dispensation according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 and uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. What it really means that we're living in the church age is that God is accomplishing his plan on the earth through this thing that is called the church. That's all the people who have come into a relationship with God through Christ and have been placed into his son, into the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, we entered into this dispensation officially in the book of Acts, and it's continued now for about the last 19 and a half centuries. Now, when you put Revelation chapter 2 and 3 into the context, in fact, why don't you go back there, Revelation chapter 2. When you put Revelation chapter 2 and 3 into the context of what God said he was going to be the way that he would lay out the whole of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1.19, you can see it there. God said, this is how I'm going to give you this revelation, John, and this is how I want it to be presented. And when you take Revelation 2 and 3 and you put it into the context of what God said in chapter 1 and verse 19, what you find is that the last 19 and a half centuries of this dispensation that we've been living in, as far as God sees the church age and as far as God has revealed to us the church age, God sees it in seven periods. He's divided the church age into seven periods, and those seven periods are represented in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters that our Lord wrote to the seven churches that are found in these two chapters. And though these seven letters that our Lord wrote were, were real letters that were written to real churches that really existed in Asia Minor at the end of the first century and really addressed the needs that they were really having there, they also represent seven periods of church history that take you through the entire history of the church from where the book of Acts leaves off, and it takes you all the way up to the rapture of the church, which just happens to be, if you'll turn over and look at Revelation chapter 4, it comes at the very next verse after the letter to the seventh period of church history has ended. And... We're using this term rapture, and that's the next term that you need to make sure that you, you understand this morning. And the rapture is that event that is spelled out for us, described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, as well as Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And in both places, what it talks about is the fact that heaven is going to open. The Lord is going to descend into the clouds. There will be a, a voice, a trumpet. And again, all of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation and through that have come into a relationship with God, all of those people will be caught up or raptured off of the face of this planet and transported 
into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then that leads us to the next term, and that's the term Laodicean. The group of people, according to Revelation chapter 3, who will be alive and remain on the earth when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, will be the people in that seventh period of church history. Those that Revelation 3, 14 to 22 refer to as the Laodiceans. And two things that you want to make sure that you, you understand about Laodiceans, and again now, those are those believers who are going to be raptured off of the face of the earth. Number one, the first thing you need to know about them is they are us. The Laodiceans are us. We are the believers that are described in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And that's the second thing that I want you to know about the Laodiceans. According to what Jesus outlines here in verses 13 to 22, we're a sorry lot. I don't know any other way to put it than that. We're just a sorry group of people. We, we call it, in Christianity today, we call it being balanced. What Jesus calls it in, in Revelation chapter 3 here, is he calls it being lukewarm, and what he says is it makes me nauseated. Spiritually, we say that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and Jesus says, you're wretched, miserable, poor, and naked we look at life and we look at the Bible and we look at our culture and we look at everything and we think that we see perfectly Jesus says here in this chapter that it, we don't just have a, a sight problem he says we are blind Laodiceans are those who are celebrating the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in rooms like this one on Sunday morning and and Sunday night when Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock, and what I'm really wanting is for somebody to just somehow hear the faint cry of me knocking in the back there, and somebody go back and have the decency to open the door and let me be a part of this thing that you're calling celebrating the presence of Jesus Christ. That's, that's Laodicea. But as sorry as we are, those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we will be that group of people that I believe will be raptured off of the face of this planet in the very, very near future. Now, once we're removed, it's going to give way to the next dispensation referred to biblically as the tribulation. That's the next term on your, on your sheet, or it's the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob, of course, is he whose name was changed by God to Israel. And once the church has been removed at the rapture, what's going to take place is God is once again going to turn his attention to fulfilling the promises that he gave to the nation of Israel. And in order to do that, the nation of Israel and really the entire world is going to be thrust into a seven-year period of tribulation. Jesus himself said there's never been a time like it before it, and he said there'll never be a time like it again after it. An absolutely horrendous period of time on this planet, and it'll be a period of time where God carries out his plan on the earth through a very special group of believers referred to in the book of Revelation as the 144,000. Now that's where we are in Revelation 14 talking about this group. But if you look in Revelation chapter 7, this is where we were first introduced to this group. And what we found in Revelation chapter 7 verses 4 through 8 is that this 144,000, who they actually are, is they are Jews, and they are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what the first three verses of Revelation chapter 7 tell us here 
is that before the, the wind of God's judgment begins to blow upon the earth during the tribulation period, the Lord Jesus Christ, in much the same way that he, he, he came to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he is going to appear to the 144,000 Jews, and at that point, just like Paul, they will be miraculously converted. They will become the servants of our God, as verse 3 says, to carry out his plan on the earth in the tribulation period. And this group of people, the 144,000, will be used of God to reach an incredible number of people with the gospel. Verse 9 in chapter 7, you can see it there. They're going to reach people, and un, uh, a, a number that you can't even number from every, all of the nations and kindreds and people and tongues. And when we come to Revelation chapter 14, okay, and why don't you make your way over there again. When we come to Revelation chapter 14, what God does is he shows John this incredible group of believers who, as we've said for several weeks now, will be the only group of believers in any dispensation who ever fulfilled their purpose the way that God intended. And that's what makes this group of people stand out. They're the only group of believers in any dispensation who ever fulfilled the, their purpose the way that God intended. And when John sees them in chapter 14, he sees them in the heavenly Mount Zion. He sees them after their work has been completed on the earth. Now, that work was going on back in chapter 7 when we came to him. But now what John sees them in the heavenly Zion. And what John begins to do in this passage in verses 1 through 5 is he begins to go into a description of this incredible group of believers. And I'd like for us to take the time this morning just to, to refresh ourselves and read through the passage. Let's begin in verse 1. John said, and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of the great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are, were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Now, Lord, this morning, I pray that as we talk about this group and we seek to learn things from this group that we can apply to, to our lives, we, we ask for, for your help. We, we understand, we acknowledge this morning that this is your book. And we are so grateful that in your gracious, graciousness you have allowed us to be able to have this book in our own language. We can read uh, and see who you are and how we can know you. And we're grateful for that. And, and we recognize that this book is, is a book that must be revealed to us by the Spirit of God as we compare things spiritual with things spiritual. And so, 
We are submitting ourselves to you. We pray that the Spirit of the living God would take these truths to our hearts today and would change us. And Lord, while you're doing that in those of us that already know you, we pray that at the same time you would be taking these truths and uh, applying them in a different way to those that are here this morning that have never come into a relationship with you through the Lamb that we've just read about here. So Lord, do in all of us today what only you can do, and may we all leave changed people for your glory's sake. Amen. Now, as we read through the first five verses, you can see there that, you know, if, if our intent was just to identify the characteristics that God shows us here about this, this group of people. We could have hit that in one week, and we could have been well on our way. But, but as you begin to go through here, and I'm, I'm telling you, this, probably of everything that we've studied in the book of Revelation, those five verses right there have just grabbed a hold of my heart, and I'm just so blessed by this, this group. And as you begin to, to see the, these characteristics that John sees and that the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to record for us, what we begin to, to see as we look at these characteristics is though the, the 144,000 are a totally different group of people than we are, though they are in a totally different dispensation than we are, what you can't help but notice is that the things that God inspired John to record about the 144,000 are, are characteristics that have a very practical application to those of us that are living in this dispensation, in the church age. And you see, you can already see why we went, took the time this morning to define those terms so that you can understand they're something different than we are, and yet what we're seeing is there's a lot of things that we can learn from this incredible group of people. And listen now, especially for those of us who are living in this seventh and final period of church history, because it it's almost like the very things that God highlights here in the first five verses here of Revelation 14 about the 144,000, they are the very things that we as Laodiceans struggle with. The things that John highlights about this special group of people are the very things that appear to be lacking in the testimony of those of us in Laodicea. And so this passage has really become just a really uh, a practical place for us to go and see some things and be challenged in the dispensation that you and I live in in these last days before the, the rapture. For example, with the 144,000, there is visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father, and that evidence is made visible, first of all, through the seal of the 144,000 servants of our God. We, we saw back in Revelation chapter 7 that before the winds of God's judgment begin to blow upon the earth, that God marks them as his personal possession with a seal. And Revelation 14:1, as you can see it there, tells us that this seal is the Father's name that is written on their foreheads. I mean, all you've got to do in the tribulation period to see the identification of this group of people with the Lamb and the Father is just look at them because it's written all over them where you can't miss it. And what we've seen, how that applies to us is that in this dispensation in which we live, God also marks his personal possession with a seal. Not a name that's written on our foreheads, but what Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 calls the seal of the Holy Spirit, which 2 Timothy 2.19 says marks us 
as God's personal possession in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 say, it causes our identification with the Lamb and His Father to be made visible. Again, not because He writes anything with ink on our forehead, but what it says in 2 Corinthians 3 is because He writes in our hearts and our identification with Him is written all over our lives and it becomes visibly evident and the, the practical application that we're really trying to hit on here is the fact that Laodiceans are a group of people and there's literally millions of them that are running around claiming that they've been sealed with the Spirit of God they claim that they are identified with the Lamb and His Father, but there's one problem. There's just no visible evidence of that in their life. And when there is no visible evidence of it in our life, what it means is there's nothing written on our hearts because we've not been sealed with the Spirit of God and we are not, in fact, identified with, with God and, and the, the Father and the Lamb. And then with the 144,000, we saw that their identification with the Lamb and His Father is also made visibly evident by another characteristic that John records about them, and that is their submission, the submission of the 144,000 servants of our God. And, and you see in the middle of verse 4 here in chapter 14, what it says is they follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. And again, you can't miss, you can't miss their identification with Him because you cannot look at the Lamb in heaven without seeing the 144,000 because what the verse tells you says is they are literally every single place that the Lamb goes, whithersoever he goeth, that's right where they are. And we've seen that that is going to be true of this special group of people in heaven because it will be true of them as they carry out their ministry upon the earth. In the tribulation period, as they serve God, as the servants of God, they will follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. And the reward for that in heaven is they will once again follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. And the practical application again to us, what we've seen, is that in this dispensation, God intends for our identification with Him to be made visibly evident by the same characteristic that we see in the 144,000, by our submission because we follow the lamb literally whithersoever he goeth jesus said in john chapter 10 and verse 27 listen to it he said my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me all of those that have a true connection with me all of those who are my sheep they have this incredible characteristic about them. They follow me. They just follow. And, and what all of this has done is it's really opened up to us the whole subject of what it means biblically to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because again, in this seventh and final Laodicean period of church history, there's lots of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and believe that they with all of their heart they believe that they are his followers in the sense that they believe that they've been born again they believe that they're saved but when you line their life up to what the Bible says is characteristic of followers these so-called followers of Jesus Christ don't appear to be biblically 
followers. Now, for those of you that are here for the first time today, we, I, we don't have time to explain all the ramification of these, but as we began to look biblically at what it means to follow the Lamb, we looked, first of all, at the, the presuppositions of following. The presuppositions of following. The, the very idea of following the Lamb assumes or presupposes some things. First of all, we saw that it presumes change. If I'm being asked to follow, that means that I've got to change, first of all, my direction. I'm heading the wrong way because the Bible says that I've been following my own passions and desires. I've been following my own way, and the invitation of Jesus is to follow him. So it presumes change, which again is very uncharacteristic of Laodiceans. Laodiceans claim that they've been saved, and yet there's no change that you ever see in their life. Secondly, we saw that it also presumes submission. And again, a very rare characteristic for Laodiceans. And then we began looking at the prerequisites of following. I'd like for you to turn back to Matthew, or Mark chapter 8, if you would. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus made it very clear that the evangelistic invitation he was offering to the world wasn't to, to say the right words of a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. What we see in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 is that the invitation that Jesus was giving was to become one of his followers. And, and Jesus said that in order for that to happen, there's, there's two prerequisites. Look at it in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, the middle of it. Jesus said, Whosoever will come after me. And there's the evangelistic invitation. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we've spent several weeks now just talking about the first one, what it means to deny yourself. And we've seen that the first thing it means is to come to the place that I no longer trust in myself, which results in a, in a second meaning, and that is that I no longer live for myself. Or in other words, I no longer love myself, again, which is a very monumental thing for Laodiceans because of what God said would be characteristic of us in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. What God says to us as Laodiceans, those that are living in these last days, is that the overriding characteristic of us, of this group of people, is that we will love our own selves. And you see, that's why we've taken such a long time and pounded this thing for all of these weeks because as Laodiceans, the hardest part of living the Christian life, the thing that we just continually find ourselves bumping into all over the place is this thing of self. Claiming that we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but continuing to live for self, continuing to love self, all the while, again, convincing ourselves that we're followers and we're following the Lamb. And again, that is just the epitome of Laodicea. I'm following, I just don't have any of the characteristics of a follower. That's Laodicea. When the reality is, folks, listen, and God is just so cool the way that he just is so black and white. He just puts it out there. And the way the Bible breaks this thing down is, is to follow Christ is to deny self. To follow self is what? to deny Christ. And, and I want to take just a, a minute to ask you. We, 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 we've tried to come at this from 
just about every angle that the Bible does, to be quite honest with you. But, but I want to ask you for just a, a second where you are with this whole thing. Are, are you denying yourself? Or are you denying Christ? Because the fact of the matter is, there, there is no gray zone there. We're doing one or the other this morning. One or the other is characteristic of our life. Maybe I could, I could put it to you this way. Let, let, let's say that you die today. And we're going to have your tombstone, and on your tombstone there's going to be an epitaph. That, for you junior hires, that's what you write on, on the deal. You know, here lies so-and-so, and, you know, here's a little blurb that's going to be, be said about it. So what, what's going to be said on this tombstone is, is what's been characteristic of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, not since you've been saved, because that would be too hard, because some of us struggled big time in, in, you know, the first part of that thing. So let's just go back for the last year, okay? So you're going to croak today, and what's going to be written on your tombstone is what's been characteristic of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ in just the last year. Now, the thing that's going to be the clincher on this thing is who's going to write it, okay? The epitaph isn't going to be written by those of us that are in your church that love you a whole lot. It's not going to be written by your family members who are going to be just real gracious to you. you know, we're gracious to everybody who croaks, you know. It's not going to be written by your discipler. It's not going to be written by your disciple. Let's just say God's going to write the epitaph about you as a follower in the last year. And I'm asking you, what would God write? And so you do understand that what's going to be written about you as a follower of Jesus Christ is not what we thought you were. Because we look around and you know what? Man, there's a lot of us that look like we're real good followers. It's not what we think. It's not what you appeared to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because it is very easy to learn the lingo and know all the places to show up and know all the right things to do at just the right time and all of that kind of a thing. What's going to be written about us on this tombstone for all the world to see is what God sees in us as a follower of the Lamb, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you, what would God say, really? W would God write... He or she, whatever the case is, it followed the Lamb whenever it was convenient? Or you, you followed the Lamb whenever it didn't conflict with, with your schedule and your priorities and your goals and your dreams and your aspirations and your will? What would he write? You, you followed the Lamb whenever it seemed desirable to you. Or you followed the Lamb whenever it was popular to do. Or whenever it helped serve your purposes. Would he say you followed the Lamb for the applause of men? But I'm really asking you, could God write about you what was written about the 144,000? That you followed the Lamb anywhere and everywhere and at all times, whithersoever he went? And I want, I want to take you just real quick. To, to show you the epitaph 
that God wrote about Caleb. I don't know if you've ever really seen what God does with this guy, but this, this just blessed my heart and challenged it at the same time. And I'll, I'll just take you here briefly and see if God might be able to do the same thing with it that he did with me. First of all, Numbers chapter 22. Did I say 22? I meant 32. Numbers chapter 32. And look with me at verse, verse 11. And God says, Surely none of the men that came uh, up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have, watch this now, they have wholly followed the Lord. And turn over just a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and look at verse 35. Again, God's going to write about this guy, Caleb. And look at what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35 surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers save Caleb the son of Jephunneh he shall see it and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon and to his followers because he hath wholly followed the Lord and go over again to the book of Joshua just to the right again Joshua chapter 14 in this chapter, God's distributing out the inheritance in the land. They're in the land now. And God's breaking all of this out through Joshua. And look at what God says in Joshua chapter 14 and verse 13. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And, and what I began to see as I'm going through there, listen, every time God brings up the name of Caleb, he wants to let us know something about this guy, Caleb. And that is that this is a guy that did it right. This is a guy that knew what it was to follow him. Caleb followed him from top to bottom, from beginning to end, in good times and bad. Caleb followed when it was convenient and when it cost him something. He, he followed the lamb when it was popular and he followed the lamb when he had to stand alone and everybody was against him. He followed the lamb when he could see the hand of God's blessing on him and he see, followed the lamb and followed him wholly at those times of life where he couldn't even figure out where God was at all. He followed wholly the Lord. And you see, the, I guess the thing that blesses me about that, again, is in contrast to Laodiceans. Because Caleb wholly followed the Lord. We partially follow the Lord. We sometimes follow the Lord. We haphazardly follow the Lord. 
and, and maybe this one says it best. We, we dividedly follow the Lord. But I'm asking you, where are those in Laodicea? Where are those in this dispensation? Where are those in this group of people that's getting ready to get raptured off of the face of this planet? The group of people that ought to have more anticipation in us than any group of people who ever lived on this planet because of what's been revealed to us. And I want to ask you, where are those who wholly follow the Lord? You see, we're like the Israelites of Elijah's day. And we've got the the following God things that we do over here. And we've got the following self things that we do o over here. And we never quite seem to make the connection that the two are mutually exclusive. And because we're doing this one, it necessarily means we are not doing this one regardless of what we convince ourselves because you are not doing both of them at the same time and I'm telling you it's amazing when you begin to watch this thing unfold in Laodicea because Laodicean pastors like myself we stand in churches sometimes and what what second Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 says is characteristic of preachers in this period of time is that we do a whole lot more teaching than we actually do preaching and we tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear and rather than than turning people to face the truth of the word of God what it says that we do in second Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 it says we actually turn them away from the truth and unto fables and then Laodicean pastors step back from all of this stuff and, and they look at the people in their church who faithfully come week after week after week and yet the people that come week after week and claim that they're following the Lamb are people who end up getting divorces right in the church. They're people who end up husbands and wives cheating on each other and sometimes in Laodicea with people in the very congregation. And Laodicean pastors are, are, are looking at, at church members who say they are following the Lamb and they drink, they can't get them to do anything, they can't get them to serve, they can't get them to make disciples, they can't get them to give, and lay out of sea and pastors, look at the whole thing, and they ask the question that Elisha asked in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 14. Lay out of sea and pastors, look at the lay out of sea and question, and we say, where is the Lord God of Elijah? That's what we need today, we need the Lord God of Elijah to step in and do something. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And it's a great question. But God's got a better one. God looks at the Laodicean situation and he asked, Where are the Elijahs of the Lord God? You, you see, our, our, our problem is in the Laodicean church period, nobody wants to address the fact that in Laodicea, that the quote-unquote followers of Jesus Christ don't do one minor little thing. They don't follow Him. And I believe the question that God is asking today 
as he looks down at the Laodicean church period, is where are my folks and who are going to stand up like Elijah did in 1 Kings chapter 18? In fact, why don't you cruise over there? 1 Kings chapter 18. I believe God is looking down at Laodicea and he's saying, who, who are going to be the ones who will face those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who have this divided allegiance in their hearts, who live week in and week out and month in and month out and year in and year out and are just okay with the fact that I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You just can't see it in my life. And we just con continue smugly to just walk on through our layout of sea and church period, totally blinded to what's really going on. And I believe God is saying, when is somebody going to stand up and have the audacity to suggest that if you are not following the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. But you see, you don't hear that in Laodicea. But, oh, buddy, what you find here in 1 Kings chapter 18 is when Elijah looked out and he saw the same situation that we're facing today, what you begin to find out is, is our boy Elijah brought the issue to a head. Now, you see, in, in, in Elijah's day, it, it, the, the issue that he was dealing with, with this divided allegiance, was, was Baal. Baal is the sun god. He goes back to the Tower of Babel religion, and it's a, it's a whole false system that still continues today, still present on the earth. It'll be the system that we're in during the, the, the tribulation period, or, well, the world is going to be in at that point. We'll be gone, hallelujah. But, but what, 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 what the whole deal is that's going on here in 1 Kings chapter 8 is that God's people had an altar over here for Jehovah. Now, the word Jehovah in the Bible, every time that you see it, it's a capital L-O-R-D in the Bible. It's the word for Jehovah. And what it means is that He is the one true God. He is the self-existing God. He's the one that life just flows out of Him, and He's always existed. And, and what, what you see here in 1 Kings chapter 18 is here's the, the, the children of Israel... And they've got an altar over here, and it's, it's for Jehovah. It's for the one true God. And yet, they've got an altar over here for Baal. Okay, now, now common sense would tell you that if this one over here is for the one true God, what in the name of Pete is this one doing, you know? I mean, this, this does not, it does not compute, you know? And, and here's Elijah, and he, he, he's like us Laodicean pastors. He just, he looks at it, and looks at it, and looks at it. And finally, he's had it. And he comes to the place where he gets the, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the groves, which is a, just a big sensual orgy and that whole deal. And he gets all of these, the big namers over here. And he gets these guys here, and he stands over here. And he pulls all of the people of the nation of Israel together, and they've got this little amphitheater thing going, you know. And they, here they are all out there, and, and, and Elijah comes before the people, and he says, Excuse me. <laughs> uh, hello. I, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade here, and I don't want to get anybody upset, don't want to ruffle any feathers, and... You don't want to lick the red off your candy or anything like that. But I just got, I, I just got to say something uh, about this whole situation. It stinks! What, what do you think you're doing? 
That, that's what he says. I mean, the man is intense when he comes to this thing. Look, look at First Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. He comes out before this group of people and he says, Hey, listen, if the Lord, Jehovah, the self-existing one, the one true God, if the Lord be God, listen to it, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But what he's trying to get these people to see is, you can't do both. I don't care what dispensation you live in. I don't care if you are a Laodicean. I don't care if we are America. You don't do both. Now, obviously, Baal isn't the issue in, in Laodicea. Baal isn't what divides our hearts. Baal isn't what divides our allegiance. And we're not going to take a whole lot of time to do this. Just get it quickly on your study sheet. But if you want to know what's going to divide your heart in the Laodicean church period, if you want to know what's going to divide your allegiance in Laodicea, Paul lists four gods, as it were, in the books of First and Second Timothy. And you identify these gods because he says these are things that we love. In Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, and we've already mentioned this one, he talks about the God of self or the love of self. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, he talk, or, or 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 talks about the God of money. 2 Timothy 3 4 talks about the God of pleasure. And 2 Timothy 4 10 talks about the God of this present world. Now folks, listen. If you want to know what's vying to yank your heart and to divide your allegiance to make you like the children of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 8, you're looking at a real good list. Self, money, pleasure, and this present world. And I want you to know something, folks. Now, we're Laodicea, and we don't like, we don't like people to be hardcore. We want, what it says is, is that in that Second Timothy passage, chapter 4, about this, us Laodicean preachers, what it says is that the people will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears saying, tell me what I want to hear. Now, I want to tell you something. Elijah ain't going to tell you what you want to hear. Elijah is going to tell you the way that it is, and I'm going to just act like I'm Elijah today. How about that? You want to do it? All right, I like it. Can't wait to hear what Elijah wants to say. Now, remember, this is Elijah, not me, because I'm a Laodicean pastor, and I want you to like me. So this is Elijah. I, I just got to tell you, really. And, and man, I, I wish with all of my soul, I wish I could croak right now, and I wish Elijah could come do it. Not because I'm afraid to. Oh, buddy, wouldn't you have loved to have been there in First Kings of Mount Carmel when he came out before the people and he said, Hey, how long halt ye between two opinions? Oh, man, I'd have loved to have been there for that, buddy. Unless I would have had my altar for Baal over here, you know. It could have been a problem. I could have been scared out of my wits, you know. But, oh, bud, I, I, I'd love to have been there to just be a part of, of what was happening there because he was the man of God, man. And he came out and he busted that thing. But I believe Elijah would come before this group of people today and, and look at me and probably me chief among all 
because I'm the one that opened my mouth about all of this stuff. But Elijah would say to every single one of us in this room this morning, if the Lord is God, follow Him. And you see, some of us are getting dull of hearing on this thing of following because we've been talking about this for all this time. And, and listen, we're still not following though. We're still, we biblically don't look like people who follow the Lamb according to what the Bible says is characteristic of us. But now listen. God lays it out this way. You follow Him. But if you're God, let, let's just go through the list here. 2 Timothy 3, 2, with love of self. We, we talked about that whole cult thing. It, it, listen, if you're God then go ahead and go for it and follow your own selfish desires and your own selfish pleasures and your own selfish lust. Continue on in your self-gratification, your self-centeredness, your self-sufficiency, your self-promotion, your self-glorification, and just keep talking about your rights and your time, your privacy, your reputation, your schedule your future and just keep talking in terms of me and my and mine and just keep asking what's in it for me and how is this going to benefit me and listen if you're god go for it and listen if you are just forget this whole god church and the bible thing sell yourself out to yourself and quit messing around with all the conviction and guilt folks either go one way or the other is what elijah would say i think that's what god is wanting to say We've graced this thing for 10 weeks now. And it's just time that we come and we say, you know what? We're not following the Lamb. I still follow myself. And the message is, I'm not really following the Lamb if I'm following myself. And so let's just make a choice. Which way are we going to go with it? But God says, I'm not into this whole deal to where you give me a little bit of allegiance and you do your little Sunday deal and then all week long you go out and do your thing all week long. It doesn't work. Next, Elijah would stand before us, lay out his hands and say, now listen, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if money is, I mean, if you really, if that's that important to you, what Elijah would say, what I think God wants to say to lay out a sins, if it is, then go for it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, anything for the, you know, what do we call it? The almighty dollar. You know why we call it that? Because it is a God. And when you love money, you do not love God. When you love money, you do not follow God. And it doesn't matter how many mission trips you go on or fund. If you love money, you don't love God. That's not my words. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? No man can serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate this one and love the other. You can't do both. You cannot. No, this is, I'm, I'm quoting now the words of Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. And it's interesting the way that Paul talked about this God in, in 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some coveted after. They followed after. And in so doing, they have erred from the faith. You know what it's saying? You can't serve God money. 
Because as soon as you make this a God, you do not have this as a God. As soon as you love this, you don't love this, which poses a lot of problems for Laodiceans because we have this desire to be rich. And if we've been around here long enough, we don't ever verbalize it, but in our heart of hearts, we've got this desire going around. And, and you know what? You don't have to have a lot of money to love it. Did you know that? The desire, the love of money causes us to err from the faith because you cannot follow money and at the same time follow God and Elijah would come out before this group of people who have divided in their allegiance because of the God of pleasure and he would say now listen if the Lord is God then follow him but if pleasure if pleasure is God then follow it and listen if if pleasure is God then listen, just keep packing your life full of all kinds of way, ways to entertain yourself. Go here and do this and buy that. Listen, if pleasure is God, just go for it and do anything that it takes to please yourself because, you know, that's the goal when you have the God of pleasure. And you see, if you're in a marriage and it's not bringing you pleasure, then listen, it doesn't really matter who you hurt or what vow you break. Listen, if you serve the God of pleasure, just go for it. And make yourself just as happy as you can possibly make yourself because you are serving the God of pleasure, but God is wanting us to see. You don't serve the God of pleasure. And at the same time, follow Him. And if pleasure is it, then listen, don't keep doing this thing don't don't keep listening to this thing about denying yourself and dying to yourself daily and surrendering to christ and and sacrificing for missions and and giving up your vacation and and giving and and, and saving your money and and supporting missionaries around around the world you know why are we doing this if god is god then let's let's just go for it but if pleasure is god Let's don't dabble around with it and still play the Sunday game. That's what God's saying. Just go one way or the other. You see, I'm afraid that in the whole process of Laodicea and that whole process of pampering our flesh and our refusal to deny ourselves, we, we have lost sight of the, the purpose that we sang about today that, that Frank mentioned this morning from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. What he says is, and this is part of our worship to the Lord in eternity, for thou hast created all things and for, what? Thy pleasure they are and were created. Folks, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then the primary goal of your life is not to be happy. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the primary goal of your life is to be holy and to bring Him pleasure, to bring pleasure to the heart of God. But if you want to continue to serve the God of pleasure, scrap the God thing and just go for it and have a great carnal time out there. Elijah would come before us, lay out a sea and and say, listen, here, here it is. If the Lord is God, follow Him. 
But listen, if this present world is God, then do like Demas and just walk away from God because, listen, if you've got that attachment to this present world, whether you realize it or not, you've already walked away from God. So go ahead and do it and forget this church thing, forget the Bible thing, forget the giving thing, forget the praying thing. If this present world is the thing, then buddy, go for it. He, he said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. When our love, when our attention, when our devotion, when our affection, our focus is attached on the things of this world, it cannot at the same time be attached to God. Don't you love Elijah? I'm telling you, he, he just puts it out there and just gets us to the point to where we go. Yeah. This does make a whole lot of sense. Why do I just keep pampering my little selfish flesh while well, I'm convincing myself that I'm following God? And, and are, are you still in 1 Kings chapter 18? I want you to look at verse 21 again. I want you to look at, at why Elijah says to follow God. Look at what he says. If the Lord be God, that's the reason. It's because he's God. If the Lord, if Jehovah be God, if he's really God, then, then follow him. And, and do you understand what he, what he means by that? He, he looks out upon the Israelites that are out there and he says, listen, if Jehovah really is, in fact, the one and true God, he, he is saying, by the very nature of what he's saying here, he says, if he's God, then I insist that it is your duty to follow him simply because he's God. Because he's God, follow him. Because he's God, serve him. Because he's God, obey him. In other words, I, Elijah's saying, listen, I'm not telling you folks to follow God and obey God and serve God because it's going to be to your advantage. I, I'm not saying to, to follow God because you think it's nice. He said, I'm not saying follow God because it serves your purposes to do that. He says, if you believe that he's God, that's the only reason that you need to follow him. Just the sheer fact that he's God. If he's the one that put breath into your nostrils, then follow him. If God really is the one that's worthy of worship and you really think so, Elijah says either follow him or just deny that he's God at all. But if you think that you're God, if you think that money is God, if you think that pleasure is God, if you think that this present world is God, then go for it and follow it and forget this whole God thing. And, and you see, this is where, remember what Jesus said about Laodiceans? We think we see very well, but we're, we're blind. Now, now watch how Laodiceans get blinded in all of this deal. Because 
Here's what some of us do. We, we, we come to the place to where we do certain things that we know God wants, but we do them not because He's God. We do it because we're motivated by self. You know, watch this. Some of us have come to the place in our lives, and we can listen to a message like this, and we're thinking to ourselves, Oh, buddy, do I hope so-and-so is listening to this. Because I'll tell you what, I believe they love money. I believe they are in this present world, and I think that they, I think they love, you know, and we're, we're going through the whole list, while some of us just sitting back having a jolly good time listening to, you know, Elijah go nuts in here. And we've been totally untouched. And, and, and watch, watch the subtlety of, of, of how this whole thing comes down. Some of us have convinced ourselves that we, we follow the Lord. And you see, because we, because we want to follow the Lord, well, we want to be, we want to be holy. You see? And, and, but as I begin to analyze why I desire to be holy, I desire to be holy, not as First Peter chapter 1 talks about, not because he is holy. In other words, not because he's God. I, I, I desire to be holy because I don't like the guilt that I feel when I'm not. And I, I, you know, I feel good about myself as a Christian when I am. So you see, the motivation for my holiness is not God. My desire to be holy is not because He's holy! My desire to be holy is because I like the way I feel when I think I'm holy. And, and you see, Laodiceans, we, we, we get blinded to the self in us because we think the desire is holiness, but the reason we want holiness is because of me. And I desire to know the Word of God, but not because it's how God chose to reveal Himself. And apart from this book, it's impossible for me to know Him. I desire to know the Word of God because, you know, the more that I know about this book, and the more skillful I am with this book, the more impressed everybody else with me is with me as a Christian. And because they're so impressed, it, it makes me kind of impressed with myself. And you see what begins to happen here is the whole reason that we want to know the Word of God is so that we can impress ourselves and everybody around us. And when that becomes the motivation for us knowing the Word of God, we may know a lot about the Bible, but God is not impressed. Because I do want to remind you that Satan knows more about the Bible than any person and all of us together in this entire room and God's not real impressed with all of that. But I, I want to know the Bible so I can show everybody how much I know about it. I desire to have the power of God on my life. Not, not because, as, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, not because it's, it's how God takes the simple words of the gospel and transforms them into the mighty, miracle-working, sin-delivering message that transforms lost people into sons and daughters of God. I desire the power of God because I like the feeling of power. And again, 
I feel really good when you think the power of God is on my life. And, and because so-and-so over here, man, I think they're getting the power of God. I don't want to be left behind. I'm going to look like a, I'm going to look like a jerk in that church. So God, I really want your power on my life. And God says, what? You don't want the power because of why I give the power. You want it that you may consume it upon your own lust. And, and you see what I'm talking about with layout of sins? Oh my. Even those of us that convince ourselves that we're followers. And this is why. He says, you think you're this. And you don't know that you're this because self blinds us to ourselves and makes us think we're following God when we're following the same God we followed before we came to Christ, the God of self. And turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Just a real encouraging day, isn't it? comes with the weather, man. <clears throat> Check this out. God says in verse 11, To what purpose is this multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it and I can't stand it. It's iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I'm, I'll hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Here, your hands are full of blood. And, and now listen, what you've got to understand about this is all this stuff that God is, is listening here that they're doing that he can't stand is, listen, it's all the stuff that he commanded them to do. Every bit of it. It's all part of what God told them to do. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the whole, whole shmeal. And he says, I think I'm going to scream if you do this again. But the issue wasn't what they were doing how they were doing and look at what he says verse 16 wash you make you clean put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil look at verse 18 come now and let us reason together saith the Lord though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool. You see, the answer was not for them, oh, okay, you don't like that stuff anymore? Well, okay, then I won't do that anymore. 
We just won't do the new moons and the Sabbaths and feasts and you know all, all that stuff. No, God is saying, if you're just going to keep doing it this way, save it. I hate it. But what I want is I want you to change. I want you to wash and, and listen. Let's just raise him together. You know what? If you'll come and you'll confess that as a Laodicean, we still are pulled by the God of self and by the God of money and by the God of pleasure and by the God of this present world. And if you'll confess that even the things that we look at that make us prove to ourselves that we're followers because we are holy and because we desire to know the Word of God and we know quite a bit of it and we really want the power of God in our life. Even when you look at that stuff that God does want us to do and we see that we do it for selfish motivation, God says, listen, let's reason together. And why don't you deal with that thing and let's start at it again. You, you see, as Laodiceans, we do need somebody to come and puke us out every once in a while. We need to just be faced with the yuck of this brand of Christianity that we've embraced. We need to be worn out with it. And, and you know what? It didn't do a good job of it. Man, you know what? It, it ought to have been a lot harder than this. It would have been if Elijah was here, I promise you. I bet his nostrils are even bigger than mine, man. But what God's looking for. In this last period of church history, with this group that he's getting ready to yank out of this world, He just keeps knocking and said, man, I'd love to be a part of your whole party. But I'm out here, and because self is such a key part of this, and you've never learned to deny yourself, the two are mutually exclusive. I ain't in there as long as you're serving self in there. Come now, God says, and let's reason together. Is God reasoning with you right now? He, he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool if you just confess. And you know what we need, y'all? We need to really come to grips with the brand of Christianity that we've embraced. We need to confess it as sin. We need to stop convincing ourselves as long as we're living in that Christianity that we've embraced. We need to stop telling ourselves that we're followers of the Lamb. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I believe that's what God wants to do with us today. He's faced us with the gods that divide our allegiance. And now He says, which way do you want to go? Now, if I'm God, then, then follow me. But now listen, if you're doubtful on this thing, forget him. Really. Do yourself the favor, and really do us the, the favor, because it's just a matter of time if your allegiance is divided like that before you're getting ready to put a real spot on the name of Christ in the name of place where you worship. Oh, Lord.
I, I know that as Laodiceans, we, what we want is we want to be encouraged. And I know that there's not really a whole lot to be encouraged about in, in this message unless, unless we're willing to face ourselves and the gods that pull at us. And I pray today <clears throat> that we would be honest with you we know that you are God and that you know all things. We know that we don't we don't pull the wool over your eyes. We don't trick you. You know what's in us. You know the gods that that we continue to follow. You know the motives that cause even the the things that we use to justify ourselves. You know the motives that we have in doing them. And Lord, I uh, again thank you for the graciousness that is just a part of your being. You tolerate us is, is just mind-boggling. That you are ready to forgive us is incredible and that you love us is we'll never we'll never comprehend how you could but oh Lord would you help us today to turn a corner in our life and just because of who you are and all of the attributes even in this prayer that we've been able to acknowledge that are characteristic of you. May we follow you just because you're God. And I pray that self would be obliterated. We desire to be your followers. And when you rapture us out of the face of this planet, we want to be people that you are anxious to, to bring home and to make your bride. So Lord, cleanse us today. Lord, for those that are here this morning that have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and trusted in Him alone, apart from anything that self could merit or do, or any religiousness that self could carry out, I, I pray, Lord, that there would be people in this room today who would truly come to know You as their personal Savior. You become genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is God. We ask these things for your glory's sake.